Isaiah chapter 52 from verse 13. And I'm going to read in the New American Standard Bible. New American Standard Bible from chapter 52 of Isaiah verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty, that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are here. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, 
as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now this evening what I'm going to do is not to take the story of Gethsemane and the betrayal and arrest, which we find in these uh, verses uh, from verse 32 of chapter 14, but I'm going to dwell upon uh, the whole of this last section of this third major uh, division, the servant of the Lord, obedient unto death. I have entitled it, uh, I don't suppose most of you can see it right down here, but it's His Supreme Service and work. His supreme service and work. From uh, chapter 14, verse 32, to chapter 15, verse 47. His supreme service and work. And what I want to do this evening is very simply, uh, really, to introduce um, this uh, vitally important part of Mark's Gospel. Really, here in these verses, we stand in the presence of awesome and inexplicable mystery. We have entered the Holy of Holies, and we stand before infinite wisdom, infinite love, and infinite power reaching back into eternity past, reaching on into eternity to come, effecting in time, in the course of one single day in time, during the hours of that one single day in time, the eternal salvation of all who believe. No matter how great our intelligence, even our spiritual intelligence to lift it onto another level altogether, no matter how much we understand of the ways of God, how deeply versed we are in the Word of God, what transpired in these few hours is forever beyond our comprehension. Indeed, I think, the more we understand spiritually, the farther we go on with God, the more we realize that we are face to face with fathomless mystery. Somewhere in eternity past, before the very foundation of the world, before even the fall of man, there rang through the heavens a cry, a cry from the heart of God. Whom shall I send? 
and who will go for us. It was the heart cry of the Father as he faced the complex problem of human sin and shame. The seemingly insoluble problem of a satanized humanity. The problem was not their destruction, but for the fact that God is love. In one sense, that would have been simple. The problem was not their destruction, the putting away of a fallen humanity, the obliterating of the whole thing. The problem was reconciliation. How to reconcile a fallen humanity? How to reinstate them in the original purpose God had for them? How to bring them back to union with himself, to the fulfillment of God's original design in the constitution, the very constitution of man. That was the problem. It was the son who answered both the cry and the problem, so to speak. Here am I, <coughs> send me. Nor is this just fanciful. The writer uh, to the Hebrews tells us that Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, Though I am come to do thy will, O God, and so on, that psalm about a body thou hast prepared for me, sacrifice and burnt offering thou wouldst not, mine ear hast thou opened. I delight to do thy will. In the volume of the book it is written of me. I am come to do thy will. The writer to the Hebrews uh, tells us that that Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, was fulfilled when Christ came into this world. He actually uses the very phrase in Hebrews 10, verse 5, when he cometh into this world, he said, I am come to do thy will. Oh God, it was the Son, blessed be his name, who answered both the cry of the heart of God and the problem facing God. Certainly that is what we have seen in Mark's Gospel. Wherever we have turned, we have seen Christ as the servant of the Lord, doing the will of God. From the heart, whatever the cost. Now the time for his supreme.
supreme service and work had finally arrived. We have followed Christ from his presentation as the servant of the Lord in Mark chapter 1, through his busy and crowded life of incessant and sacrificial service to this point. Steadily and unswervingly, he, the servant of the Lord, has moved towards his supreme work and service. In his baptism, it was that work and service represented by the waters, those waters of death, that he committed himself to. It was for that service and work that the Holy Spirit came on him like a dove, signifying sacrifice. It was to fulfill that work that he had once again laid down his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Unflinchingly, from that point, he had set his face as a flint toward Jerusalem and the death of the cross. It is quite clear that from the beginning, Christ as man knew exactly what his real work was, even as man. Certainly, uh, from the moment when Peter made his great confession, Thou art the Christ, the great turning point of the Gospel according to Mark, in Mark 8 and verse 29, he had begun plainly to reveal to his disciples what his supreme service was. Now, I don't need to tell you there's point after point after point all the way through the Gospels there. Mark chapter 8 verse 31, Mark chapter 9 verse 31, Mark chapter 10 verses 33 and 34, Mark chapter 10 verse 45, just as an example. From that point, quite plainly, not in parable, not in allegory. He had spoken of his supreme service and work as the death of the cross. In fact, we could say that his whole life had been, in one sense, but the preparation for this. Now, that day, upon which all history and all time is focused, had arrived. That day upon which the very salvation of us all depends. It had arrived. Indeed, to be absolutely accurate, it had begun, according to Jewish reckoning, with sunset the Passover meal, the giving of the Lord's Supper, the prediction of their falling away, which we've done in past studies, was all within this one day. Quite a number of hours of this momentous day have already slipped past. 
now within hours, the work Christ had come into this world to do would be finished. Within hours. By nine o'clock, the next morning, he would have been nailed to the cross. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, the whole work would have been completed. Nevertheless, we must never fall into that sad trap into which many have fallen, of thinking that because that work, the work of our salvation, was completed within the course of one short day in time, within, in fact, the course of some hours during that day. It was a necessity, easy for Christ, or cost him very little. Now, there are very few Christians who would say that it was easy for Christ to save or that it cost him little. But I do not doubt that a very large number of us secretly, by our very attitude, the familiarity with which we touch Calvary and the things of the cross, think that because he was God and just because he was Jesus Christ, it was easy for him that it did not cost him what it would have cost you and me. That is a trap that we must avoid in our thinking. It cost Christ everything. Everything. Into those few hours of time was contracted a world of suffering and anguish beyond all human computation. Human language is totally inadequate, even when divinely inspired, to describe or interpret that kind of suffering. It is a fact, I think, worthy of note that none of the writers of the Gospels have tried to describe or to interpret the real sufferings of Christ. They have recorded only the outward details and have stated only the bare facts. Even the apostles, when they came to interpret what happened on the cross, even they only state the spiritual facts. He bore our sins. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. He suffered in our place. The righteous for the unrighteous, and so on. Only statements of that. No one tells us how. No one explains to us just what did happen. No one tries to describe for us the anguish 
of those hours or the depths to which the Savior went. It is as if heaven itself has drawn a veil over it, as if all were aware, both the writers of the Gospels and the Apostles, all were aware of something essentially beyond the range of human language or understanding. Something so holy, so wonderful, so mysterious and unsearchable, so immense and eternal in its significance, so cosmic in its reign, that the greatest eloquence and oratory in this world would fail to describe it, and the greatest theological mind or brain would fail to define it. The real story of how the sinless one was made sin for us, of how the Lamb of God became the lifted up serpent, has never and can never be told. All we have are clues which betray fathomless depths of anguish, of pain, of suffering. We see the acts. We watch his humiliation. We see men beat him, spit on him, deride him, play with him, make him a joke. We hear the derision and the taunting of the crowd when he's on the cross. We hear his words, words of love, words of grace, holy words, true words. We hear his cry. We see his concern for others. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. We see the outward form the outward detail. We watch the physical pain and suffering and death. We watch it all. And if there is in any of us an atom of real spirituality, we are conscious that we have seen the least part of the story. We are conscious that we have only seen a few things that indicate something behind, far, far beyond us. The physical sufferings of Christ, and let me say this clearly, not to minimize them, the physical sufferings of Christ were not the real suffering. 
he suffered physically. He suffered terribly, but so have many others. Even our Lord Jesus was not 20 years in prison as Brother Nee. There are others who have suffered and suffered physically and suffered terribly. To think that it was just physical suffering is to make a fundamental mistake in our whole approach to Calvary. We don't minimize the physical side, but those physical suffering, they were not the real sufferings of Christ. They were only the outward indication of a hidden and untold story, the visible part of an infinite and unutterable anguish. Having seen everything that can be seen, and in measure understanding what we see, we have to recognize that the real service was offered and fulfilled in the realm of the unseen. It was in the realm of the unseen that the fall began with Lucifer, son of the morning. It was in the realm of the unseen that the victory was won. Behind all that is apparent, all that can be seen. The servant of the Lord passes, as it were, out of our sight into darkness. There, his soul became the offering for our sin. <coughs> there, he was wounded for our transgression. There he was crushed for our iniquities. There our tortured, unhappy consciences became his. There he bore our sorrows and our griefs. Even our sicknesses found their home in him during those hours. Dear child of God, whilst it may be forever beyond us, let something of the mystery of it dawn on you. Sometimes we have flu. We ache in every joint and we feel so miserable and so sorry for ourselves. Sometimes we've got just an illness Oh, how sad we feel for what we have to put up. That can be for you just a little glimpse of what your Lord suffered. When it all, from Adam to the last human being that will ever be born, was contracted into a few hours, condensed as it were, into a few hours of anguish and pain. Not just physical, 
not just that his body ached in every part, but that into his mind came all the unhappy, tortured consciences of humanity. All to him. All our iniquity was cast upon him. The sin of the whole world. The sin that lies behind so many evil things, evil incidents in history, all found its roosting place in Christ. It's interesting in, he, in, in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. An interesting little word is used there. I see in the New American uh, Standard Bible in the margin, they've put it like this, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to encounter him. The thought is that it was caused to meet on him. As if every single sin, every wickedness, every evil from the whole of history was gathered together by some great magnet to the Lord Jesus Christ. All was laid upon that dear human frame. It's thus, I think, that we see what service meant for Christ. It meant nothing less than the immeasurable cost of Calvary. And we see him willingly paying the ultimate in the laying down of his own life for our salvation. Why did he do it? For duty's sake? For the honor of God? For his own glory and satisfaction? Why did Jesus do it? I think from our studies in Gospel according to Mark, we can find only one answer. It was love that made him do it. Oh, of course it was for the honor of God. But God himself would not be satisfied that anyone should do something with gritted teeth for his honor. That's, God's not like that. That someone should sort of go through grimly, growling at all these fallen creatures, as it were, around for the glory of God would not satisfy God. The Lord Jesus did it because he loved us. And the simplest of all statements, I think, which sums this up is that that, come, that comes from the lips of the Apostle Paul, he loved me and gave himself for me. No other kind of service can ever satisfy God. Everywhere in Mark, from the, be from the beginning until this point, we've seen in Christ the kind of service involved service, compassionate service, self 
sacrificing service, sympathetic service, which flows out of divine love. Here in these last hours, it is as if all the lessons in service we have learnt through the, this gospel are all summed up in the offering of himself for our salvation. For the powers of darkness, it was their hour. All the implacable hatred and jealousy of Satan found its outlet in these hours. When they found uh, that they were unable to stop that work from being fulfilled, that's what we shall deal with next week when we take Gethsemane, when those powers of darkness, when Satan found out that he was powerless to stop Christ from going forward to the cross, their frenzied <coughs> hatred, their fury knew no bound. So terrible was that time, those final hours, that even the natural creation turned away, as it were, shrunk back from it. We're told in Mark 15, verse 33, that darkness came over the whole land uh, from for three hours. Natural light faded. From out of that fathomless pain, torn from the broken heart of the servant of the Lord, we hear the most awesome cry this universe has ever heard. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was not play acting. Uh, there is abroad a kind of teaching that seems to believe that this was some kind of theatrical sequence. That, of course, Jesus was never really forsaken. That he acted it out. And, of course, it comes from our theological problem of God and man in the same person. This was no play acting. It was no theatrical sequence. It was a cry that was torn out from the servant of the Lord spontaneously. When for the first time in his being he found himself alienated from God. It was that point that it pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. 
his soul was made sin for us. In that moment, he bore away our sin and fulfilled his supreme service and work. He had tasted death for every man. Not just physical death. Some people are afraid of physical death. I've often said I don't know which will be the most wonderful way to go, to be here and alive waiting for the Lord to come and caught up, or whether it be to die and go through that way. And when he comes, get in before the rest. I don't know which really would be the most wonderful. I don't think it was just physical death, although in the end we know that's the last enemy that will be abolished. Thank God. But I think when he tasted death for every man, it was something far, far bigger than just even physical death. It was that forsakenness, that alienation, that being, as it were, made sin for us. What no one else could do Christ had done. He not only won for us an eternal salvation, tremendous and wonderful as that alone is, he closed down one whole old order. He closed it down. He finished an old creation. Shut the door on an old nature, an old man. Those of you who know your Bibles, I hope you're thinking of many scriptures. In himself, he finished a whole old order on the cross. He wound it up. And he finished it. And he laid the basis for a new order. A solid and everlasting basis for a new order. A new creation. A new heaven. And a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. A new man. Such was his supreme service. No wonder Mark chapter 1, verse 1, says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This gospel is often prostituted. It is often devalued. As if all it is is an altar call Something that just cries for people to come forward and accept Jesus. Thank God the gospel is the demanding of a decision. The gospel is a challenging of men and women to face up to the claims of God upon their lives. But it is far, far more. The gospel is the 
the, the ability of God to justify, to acquit, to make righteous any man or woman who will turn to him through Jesus Christ. So that by an act from heaven, that person is declared as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. So that nothing in heaven or hell or on earth can accuse that one. That is the gospel. And you ask me, how can God do that? Isn't that arbitrary? How can God just do that? God can do it. Because Jesus, who knew no sin, the servant of the Lord, became our sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our sin. He gives us his own righteousness. Therefore this gospel is simply that any man or woman, however depraved, however degraded, however sinful, however evil, whatever their color, whatever their class, whatever their background, if they will only humble themselves, if they will be, if they will be only obedient to the gospel, if they will repent, go down into the dust before God, as sinners who have no claim on God, then God will on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ justify some. Justify. Acquit them. No more than acquit them of all the charges ranged against them. He will declare them to be righteous as holy, as positively holy, as positively blameless, as positively pure, as positively righteous as his own son. Let the truth sink into you. No wonder Luther turned the whole of Europe upside down. What a truth! That central proclamation of this gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But it's more than that. It's not just that God can make you and I uh, righteous through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He can draw us into union with himself so that he and you become one, undoing the alienation so that we're not only declared to be righteous, but we become partakers of the tree of life. We become partakers of the divine nature. So that we become one with God. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. What a gospel. It is more than that. It goes further than even the fact that we've been saved, that we've been justified, that we've been born again. Of the Spirit of God. This gospel says. That the whole order of things. Brought in by the fall of man. Through Satan. The very perversion of the constitution of man. So that he is no longer God centered. And God conscious. And God dependent. But self centered. Self sufficient. Self dependent. Self conscious. 
that whole order has been in Jesus Christ himself crucified and buried. It's gone forever. You say to me, but the world is not like that. Why? I see. Yes, I also say to you, nor has all the world been justified. It's coming. It's coming. As sure as I stand here, whether we see the Lord without passing through the veil of death, or whether we go through the veil of death, and still behold him on that day when he comes. He is coming. As sure as I am here. And you are here this evening. Is it not remarkable that two, three days before our Lord Jesus. Was to offer his supreme service and fulfill. His real work. He spoke of his final manifestation in glory he spent 2,000 years and spoke of it as if it was tomorrow it's as wonderful as that and every real saint has thought it was tomorrow because the nearer we get to God the nearer we come to the ever present That's why Jesus said, I come quickly. Two thousand years have gone by. When he comes, it will appear, when we compare it with eternity, that it was quickly. Oh, it's so wonderful, this gospel. This gospel is not just that you and I have been saved, that we've been made one with our Lord Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit can empower us and fill us and equip us for service. It's much more than that. It is that this whole order, Satanized, this whole world which lies in the evil one, <coughs> this whole thing which has been broken up by sin, corrupted, perverted, it's all been brought to an end in the Lord Jesus Christ as the servant of the Lord. In himself, he finished it and opened a door of hope. There is in one of the prophets, I'm not sure which one, a wonderful little phrase. It says, the valley of Achor shall be a door and the valley of Achor is where Achan was stoned to death. The very place of judgment, there a door shall be opened to a new day, a new creation, a new hope. Wasn't Malachi, this is surely what Malachi was thinking. He said exactly the same. He said, it shall be like stubble. Burning everywhere the judgment of the Lord. But for you that fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. A new day. The dawn of a new day. 
We're still waiting for the actual coming of that day of the law. It's going to come. Make no mistake about it. It's going to come. We're waiting for it. And that is the wait of faith. That's why every true child of God is constituted on the very principle of faith. We are fools in this world's eyes because we are waiting for a new order. But now just wait, just in case we all sort of all live in the never-never. Manana, tomorrow, 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 always tomorrow. The kingdom of God has come to you and to me. It has come. The new order, the new order, it's come. The new creation, it's come. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, I make all things new. Listen again to the words of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, there is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Listen again to the Apostle Paul. Speaking to believers, you have put on the new man. Created after the likeness of God wherein there can not be Jew nor Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, bondman or free man, but Christ is everything and <coughs> is everyone. Listen to the Apostle Peter speaking of, of a catastrophe of universal proportions. When he says the heavens being on fire, elements melting with fervent heat, he says, but we look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The kingdom of God has come for us. We have been born anew. Born again. We are in Christ, the new man. And if this is true of everyone who is a single believer, you know, personally true of each one of us, how much more, how infinitely more true it is of the church. We, as the people of God, built together in Christ, growing up into Christ, are the testimony, really, to this new order which has come. This kingdom of God which is dawned we have even got right to break into the old world around us and in the name of Jesus bring in the new order. We can overturn the natural sequence, the things that normally people would say logically must come to pass, by prayer, together, in the name of Jesus Christ, executive, authoritative action in his name. We overturn the things. We throw back the forces of darkness, the powers of darkness. Snatch, as it were, brands out of the burning. What a gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
the Son of God. It is interesting uh, that this gospel ends in some of the ancient manuscripts with a verse after Mark 16, verse 8, which says, And he sent them out from east to west with the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Well, that's true. Well, what can we say in closing? Surely we see in this the very heart of true service. It's utterness. It's character. No one of us can truly serve our master unless like him we lay down our lives. Service is not essentially a matter of doing things, of saying things, not even of working miracles, or performing great signs, or preaching. Great messages. That is service. But service is not essentially that. That is not the essence of service. What is service essentially? It is the ability to deny oneself to give up all right to oneself. To lay down one's life for God and for others. Service is to take up one's cross and to follow him. Anything less than that is not service in the mind of God. Nor uh, is this the ultimate cost of true service. Now there are those who believe that to lay down one's life spiritually, I'm not just thinking of it physically, is the ultimate cost of true service. I don't think it is. I don't think it's the ultimate cost of true service. It is its very character, a principle inherent within it. Not something you ultimately come to, but something you settle as you enter it. And out of it, flows all your service. And anything other than that is suspect. No matter how marvellous it is, how greatly used it is, it will finally fail 
because it has the poison of self-centeredness in it. None of us is naturally capable of such service. I least. Only the Christ within us can offer such service. As he said, abide in me and I in you. Only in that way can you and I be enabled. Have you found that secret? People say, oh, I can't serve the Lord. But it's a simple secret. Let him do the serving. There's simple secret in the end. He is in you. He can do no other than serve. It is his character to spontaneously give himself, to share himself, to sacrifice himself. That's why some Christians are so utterly miserable. Because they've got the one inside of them who wants to give himself and sacrifice himself and share himself. But they only want something for themselves. It's like a civil war right inside. Well, well, what can we say? Only this. In introducing this section, it was supreme service, his supreme service and his supreme work that we see here. What he did, how he did it, the immeasurable cost involved, all is beyond our ability to understand what we do know and we know in our own experience in practical terms is that when he died the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom we were reconciled to God through him now if you don't know that you're not a Christian but every single true Christian in this place tonight, your heart leaps because it is your practical experience. Maybe you didn't think of it in terms of the veil being torn in two from top to bottom, but it says he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mark 15, verses 37 and 38, that veil which symbolized the alienation of sinful fallen man from God, which symbolized their falling short of God's glory through sin, the bolting and barring of the gates against sinful man, that veil was torn in two by God himself. What no one else could do, Christ had done. I hope that this study this evening will help you to understand, on the one hand, the cost of your salvation, and on the other hand, the glory, the privilege of being a child of God. 
Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we lift up our hearts to Thee. None of us can really understand what Thou didst do for us on the cross. But this we do know. Thou didst love us and Thou didst give Thyself for us. And it was, Lord, that giving of Thyself which has brought us as saved sinners, reconciled to God, here this evening. We do thank Thee, and we do ask, Lord, that somehow every one of us may catch a glimpse of our Lord. Father, Thy Word says that the Holy Spirit has come to glorify the Lord Jesus, to take of the things of his things and declare them to us. Do it, Lord, we pray, in every one of our lives. And may something of the cost of our salvation sink into us. And may we Never be the same again. Deliver us from all familiarity, all cheapness. And grant, we pray, Lord, that we shall come to appreciate in a way that means giving ourselves to Thee. We ask it in Thy name. Amen.